District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. On the program today is Roy Matthews, a Young Voices contributor who focuses on international affairs, energy and environment, and foreign policy. He is a recent graduate of Bates College where he majored in history and politics. He is currently a public policy associate at the Alliance for Innovation and Infrastructure in Washington, D.C. He previously interned at Heritage Foundation, the Charles Koch Institute, American Enterprise Institute, and received the Bastiat Scholarship from Cato Institute. Additionally, Roy interned for Senator Tim Scott and was a member of Senator Susan Collins' successful re-election campaign. When not writing about policy, he enjoys reading, exercising, and practicing his ballroom dancing. Let me know what you think of my conversation with Roy. Thanks for joining the podcast, Roy. Great to speak with you today. Thanks for having me. Why don't you introduce yourself to my listeners? All right. So I'm Roy Matthews. I'm a contributor for Young Voices. I started around January, policy associate at the Alliance for Innovation and Infrastructure, which is a think, th- a think tank that likes to foster innovative solutions to climate, transportation, energy, and infrastructure-related public policy issues. And we produce content, papers, educational materials for everyone from professors and policymakers to industry leaders and the general public. Have you always had an interest in this niche area or did it kind of come to you randomly? What what sparked your interest in energy and environment? Well, I, I love the outdoors growing up in South Carolina. I used to always go hike around Congaree National Park, which was about 10 minutes from my high school. Um, so I've always loved the outdoors, loved fishing going out to the coastline in South Carolina. Um, but as I grow, grew older and realized that, uh, you know, paying for utilities and filling my car with gas, a lot of this energy stuff is actually pretty important, um, especially amongst the shortage and high gas prices that we're experiencing now. Um, so I kind of grew into it, but I've always been sort of outdoor oriented. Um, I love uh, going outside and love protecting the environment. I like to make sure that everything's nice and clean, but I also recognize that, you know, we need gas to burn or sun to uh, harness to power our homes. That's called a balanced use approach. And definitely, I think more Americans are coming to grips with adhering to that principle that you don't need to sacrifice one versus the other. And we're not really seeing people moving to this direction of develop everything because to have a Walmart on every corner would be extremely ugly and terrible for green spaces here in the United States. We do see people kind of, in my estimation, uh, kind of moving in that preservationist direction on the other side of the pendulum of environmental talk. But I think most Americans agree with balance use. And you talked about an interesting subject, something we'll hear often about and hear more about more specifically going forward is with kind of this push for clean energy, it requires obviously meeting demands for mining sourcing rare earth materials. And you wrote an op-ed in Real Clear Energy called More Mining at Home is a Win-Win for Environment and Defense. Could you briefly summarize why you wrote that and the importance of rare earth minerals and the importance of domestically harnessing them and also sourcing them and processing them here? Sure. Well, thanks to COVID-19, I think ordinary Americans have really started to realize that all these crucial supply chains for not just energy, but food, electronics, 
the basic components that go into all the products we enjoy every day are really spread out all over the world and are really subject to the whims of governments that may or may not uh, be friendly to us. Um, so what I like to look at in this article, and I took a defense approach too, because typically a lot of folks that are focused on national defense, you know, the environment is sort of a, a secondary concern. You think, you know, big tanks, you don't think of big trees, right? But by bringing all these mining operations home and subjecting them to the two one of the most stringent and high standard environmental regulations in the entire world. Um, we can have more control over our own emissions and more control over our, over our pollution and ensure that, um, you know, that should like governments like China and um, even, you know, militia groups in the Congo or illegal mining activities that benefit um, human rights violators in Burma, you know, they don't get to sell these rare earth elements that will be mined anyway, um, rather, regardless of whether policymakers um, like it or not. Um, they don't get to sell those to um, companies that would, you know, essentially put our supply chains at risk just for the sake of, you know, making a quick buck because it's cheaper over there. Yeah, it's kind of ironic to see pushers of clean energy kind of shrug at the notion of doing it here at home. They talk about wanting to do it here, but they still are very reliant on countries outside of the United States or outside of North America. And they are really reliant on China, different countries in Africa, I think some in South America and lots of other places. Let's say, for example, when you look to projects here at home, we don't really see them approving new domestic mine operations. I think of the recent cancellation, the recent pulling of the permit of the twin metal mines in near the boundary waters of Minnesota. So how can they say they're going to develop and harness rare earth minerals here, yet for any new project relating to mine construction, they're not allowing that to go through? It's um, yeah, it's tough because conservation should be, you know, still utilizing the resources, but doing so effectively, right? And you mentioned the, the twin metal mines. I mean, that was in northern Minnesota, close to the Canadian border. Um, and it takes, oh gosh, um, maybe 20% more time to open up a mine in Canada for being a free market haven. But um, even the Canadians are starting to open uh, rare earth element mines. And I think they're building a, actually, I believe they're building a processing plant, which is um, the international market for processing plants, I think is 80% controlled by the Chinese uh, and is headquartered in China. All the factories are, are basically <laughs> essentially subject to um, the Chinese government's whims. And the Canadians are hopping on the railroad element um, train, and they're doing so by having extremely high environmental regulations and pollution standards that these companies meet. And these companies are able to open these mines and really um, <laughs> just profit off of actually um, employing people in Canada and keeping those jobs in Canada. Um, Whereas the U.S., you know, we have this sort of, I call it a culture of litigation, where if we want to open a mine or a, an industrial park, I, you know, we have the classic NIMBY problem, not in my backyard, where people will sue and then it'll spend decades in court. And a lot of investors and a lot of mining operators, they need a good amount of uh, startup time to actually recoup their investment when you open a mine. Um, and they just don't really want to go through with that. So it's cheaper to take it to 
to get your minerals from the DRC where suspected child labor is going on than have to deal with, you know, millions and millions of dollars in attorney's fees in the United States. So, and I'll guess, I'll know this is a bit long-winded, but the these elements also have a dual use purpose. So most of the technology um, that these minerals or make up magnets or certain metals or oxide are also used in defense systems for communications, for night vision goggles, for all these different different gadgets and gizmos for um, the U.S. military. And so if there was a conflict or that China wanted to squeeze our defense industrial supply, um, they would be able to do that relatively easily and there would be nothing we could really do about it. Um, so it's it's concerning from an environmental standpoint, but also from a defense standpoint. And that's where I think a lot of this bipartisan support can actually come together. And you have, you know, defense talks can work with you know, climate change warriors. It's not opposite ends of the spectrum. That's an interesting look into that. We'll see what happens with rare earth minerals going forward. But you also had an article that appeared similarly in Real Clear Energy recently. You just had something published this week. And you're talking about renewable natural gas, something I've actually heard about done in states like Missouri. Could you talk about that technology and what the gist of that article is? Yeah. So, um, you know, my dad growing up um, worked a lot in agriculture. So uh, I was subjected to lots of conversations about, you know, how many pigs there are in certain states and how there are some you know, animals outnumber some people in some U.S. states, which is pretty amazing. Um, but all of these um, animals, be it pigs, beef, uh, whatever, um, they produce a lot of waste. And a lot of that waste emits this gas methane, which is much, much worse for the environment and the ozone layer than your traditional CO2. Um, but methane actually burns a lot cleaner than a lot of typical natural gas. So what I discovered through just, you know, throw, throwing, my, throwing some information together from different agricultural companies and different studies um, is that a lot of these farms, either in Utah, uh, North Carolina, Virginia, um, actually encase um, essentially pig toilets uh, or runoff or runoff ponds where um, a lot of waste goes in these um filters that can gather up the methane that break that is emitted when all the bacteria in the waste breaks down. Um, and these have been powering, you know, they've been powering 3,000 homes in Utah. Um, they've been powering 2,500 far, farms and homes in Virginia. Um, and this is free money that's essentially sitting there or free energy also that's essentially sitting there because you can save on transportation costs because you'd have to truck in gas from outside, which would cost a lot of these farms money, when you can really just go out in your backyard, hook up a filter and really start pumping your own energy out of your own, out of your own uh, farm animals for free. Um, so I think it's a very good way for rural communities to both save on energy costs and also, um, you know, slash methane emissions, which are a problem in and of itself in this country. In terms of its viability, what percentage does it account for electricity in different states? Have you seen estimates? Like, is it insignificant? Is it starting to kind of occupy more on the electricity grid? I I don't think I've seen it really accounted for uh, like coal or biofuels or solar or wind. So is it starting to be used more? It's starting to be used more. It's still very small. Um, the biggest project I'd say is um, Purdue, the large um, uh, pork, pork processing company. 
and North Carolina has partnered with a number of farms out there to hook up these uh, methane filters and really take the methane out of the environment and also clean up the agricultural um, facilities where these pigs are processed. Um, and most of that is used to run the farms and facilities itself. So you don't necessarily have to hook up to the power grid. You can still do that as a backup option in case the, you need to um, you know, do maintenance on the filters or whatever. But the it's not a very widely used energy source, mainly because it's mostly focused in rural areas. You need a lot of land for beef, pork, chicken to roam. And it takes a while for them to grow and all that time they're producing waste. So it's mostly focused in rural areas. But if this were to be scaled up, you could have, you know, large cities utilizing some of this resource. And also, um, I should mention that for, you know, more urban areas, this biogas is also emitted from human waste. So uh, water treatment plants, um, wastewater treatment plants and all these different facilities can also utilize this gas, if you will, um, while meeting some of their electrical needs as well. Um, in, in Philadelphia, um, there's already biogas facilities being used, uh, or excuse me, being harnessed from wastewater treatment plants, and that meets 85% of its electrical requirements, um, it being the treatment plants themselves. So these have become self-sustaining facilities, which is less, uh, less emissions for the environment and more efficiency and autonomous, excuse me, <clears throat> autonomous, uh, autonomy for these facilities. Yeah, we'll have to look out in kind of the more agricultural states if this does become more commonplace in terms of harnessing technology. So Earth Day was just recently, it was last week. Do you think in your personal opinion, the country has succeeded in advancing environmental stewardship much in the vein of balanced use? Where do you think we stand as a country on energy. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a loaded question. <laughs> um, look, I'm someone who really points to just innovation. I think that allowing people, some people much smarter than me and who have much deeper understanding of these issues, innovate and actually experiment with different sources of energy. Uh, that's going to be the way that we continuously roll back and fight against the changing climate. I think we have improved. Um, oh gosh, I was reading a study that um, mostly due to the COVID-19 pandemic that emissions dropped significantly in 2020. Um, and these partnerships that are cracking down on the little things, you, know, you don't really hear about methane leaks from abandoned mines in the US because you know if you're not in an area that's had mining historically, that's sort of at the back of your mind. But these little sources of emission, and I say little, but they're, um, you know, emitting maybe 50 million tons of organic waste uh, each year. Um, that's for, say, landfills or um, organic waste that's incinerated in these massive incinerators every year. Um, but these technologies that allow us to take what we see as just waste, garbage, and utilize them for energy, well, that also takes, you know, all these emissions out of the environment, but it also continues, like you said, to get that energy into the hands of people who need it. So I think as long as we allow people to, con to continue to innovate, to continue to experiment, and to continue to find these sort of, you know, I call it free money, these sources of free money and free energy that are just sort of sitting there unused, 
you know, I think that as a country, we've made great progress, um, but there are still a lot of problems. Um, you mentioned the, for REEs, the permitting process, and for building Eva. actual energy. Yeah, and uh, building the actual energy infrastructure um, is still needed. Which there's a reluctance to do. Like I said, Absolutely. with the announcement of NEPA, they don't really want to build pipelines. Although FERC, interestingly enough, because of blowback from the American public, and I think a bipartisan effort, especially with the help of Senator Joe Manchin, uh, FERC had reconsidered that, uh, what was it? It was a consideration for environmental justice, which would basically be yep. used to stop the future construction of LNG terminals and natural gas pipelines. So they thankfully like changed their mind, but it doesn't seem like any other reasonable position like that uh, kind of translated through other agencies like in energy interior, although interior announced they would allow for more oil and gas exploration on federal lands, but a very minimal amount with respect to that. But do you think policy is still largely going to be driven by top-down policies or do you think there will be kind of this let's say inclination to move away from that because there's a tendency in Washington, especially on the left and a little bit on the right to use the purse of government to, let's say, change environmental policy or to enact policies that constrict innovation or that constrict your ability to have balanced use. Well, I am normally a cynic, (laughs) but um, I just through my work and through the innovators and industry leaders that I've talked to, um, and researched um, through my work. I do think that this slow um, pace, the onward march of technology, will force government to say, you know what, certain types of energy, certain methods of capturing energy work for different parts of the country. We we try, yeah, you, you said it pretty well in Washington, there tries to be this, you know, one size fits all, this grand plan for the entire country. And you know, agricultural places like I've talked about in North Carolina and Virginia have different sources of energy than, say, you know, Washington State. You know, hydropower with these massive rivers and out west can be a huge boon to those states' energy grids. But, you know, you take somewhere like Kansas that has a lot of wind power, a lot of solar power potential, um, that is more it just works better for those people since those are the resources that they have available. Um, so I really think that just the onward pace of technology, we've had heard a lot of developments about, you know, lithium ion battery potential and efficiency um, with those technologies. Technology will force change whether the politicians like it or not. Um, and it can be scary, but I think that's where um, we're headed right now. In terms of a more general energy policy, something I believe and something that I think makes sense is you can have an all of the above energy policy because a one size fits all approach, according to state by state kind of needs and demands and availability of natural resources and uh, certain energy forms. Uh, you can't apply the same standard across all states. Absolutely. Like here in here in Virginia, we still are very reliant on natural gas. We also are, I think, our second largest producer of electricity is nuclear, which does not get talked about, although more people are starting to warm up to nuclear, which is great. And actually a lot of information about nuclear's danger is starting to be debunked. I had heard something about uh, Chernobyl that while it was very bad, uh, some of the people coming out now are saying that some of the effects, um, not so much radiation, but some of the impact of that may have been used to kind of scare people away from nuclear. 
uh, more so. So that was interesting to, to hear recently. How come the federal government does not recognize that states have different demands, different electricity sources that can't be universally applied? <laughs> well, um, I guess that has to do with the sort of ramshackle, not ramshackle, but the sort of um, state-driven um, policies that really, I mean, they look after their energy grid because, you know, those are their constituents and that's, you know, their problem. Um, I mean, you mentioned nuclear. Uh, my home state of South Carolina gets a large amount of its energy also for nuclear. Um, and, you know, just going back to, you know, what states have, re what resources available, you know, North Dakota pumps more oil now than, gosh, some, um, some oil producing states in the Middle East. Um, so for them, natural gas is, it's there, it's cheap, it's efficient, it gets the job done. Um, whereas a state like South Carolina, are, are um, I believe 30% of the state uh, GDP comes, or excuse me, not GDP, uh, budget comes from tourism and taxes levied on um, the coast. So we don't want, say, offshore drilling. Um, right, that's a really... sensitive topic. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... You know, for South Carolina, nuclear has worked. We get a lot of sunlight. So there are some solar farms out there. But for states like Arizona, where it's all desert, you have um, concentrated solar power, which are those massive towers and large amounts of mirrors that focus the sunlight to really get a strong amount of solar power in a confined area. Um, that could be a massive boon to that state's energy grid. Um, you know, I think I, I can't speak for most politicians because I'm not one. Uh, but the tendency to have these, you know, grand plans and these massive bills that almost nobody reads. I've tried to read, and uh, well, I would be working on many weekends if I tried to read it. Um, that seek to, you know, have the sort of, you know, New Deal esque um, bigness. I want to say large yeah. S. Um, I think is just a product of our history. Um, you know, we look to the New Deal as this transformative time, both for American government and for the American economy. Um, but some of these issues are just so big that it's up to many of the states who know their energy grid and know their needs better than the federal government that they're going to need to take the lead on that. Um, and just one last thing for, for Texas, when the natural gas infrastructure froze during that winter storm uh, a couple of years back in 2021, mm -hmm. I believe, um, to the state of Texas, like launched reforms, they weather weather weatherproofing their infrastructure. They're acknowledging the fact that the climate's changing, and in order to secure our energy grid and to make sure that, that something like that doesn't happen again, we need to weatherproof and reform our energy grid, and that's what they're doing. So it's going to be some trial and error, and it's going to be states knowing what they need to do, not necessarily what the politicians in Washington uh, know. Or think they know. <laughs> Something that's been coming out more so, and I've kind of observed this over the years, but it seems like alarmist rhetoric emanating from a lot of climate activists is starting to tune out people, the American public, including those spanning all kind of political beliefs. There's someone I follow. He's a meteorologist, a climatologist, uh, Ryan Maui, and he was talking about how um, there's kind of this uh, call among people in the profession to steer away from using really, really charged rhetoric. Do you think that kind of this yeah. doomism that you often hear um, turns off people from wanting to enact, let's say, emissions reducing policies, things that are practical, 
yeah. do you see that kind of rhetoric turning people off more? I, I think so, in my opinion. I've seen that and it, it tunes people away from caring about the environment, especially when they're starting to pay more in money for energy costs. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, when you're, you know, uh, I went to college in Maine and that is the most gasoline dependent state in the country. And it obviously gets cold. And, you know, when you're working hard and trying to put food on your table and gas prices shoot up the way they do, you're going and all you hear is, oh, the world is going to end in 10 years. You're saying, well, that's nice, but, you know, I've got to make rent this month. So a lot of the sort of just alarmism, you know, I've read the the studies from the 70s, 80s, 90s, when they were saying that the world was going to end 10 years back then. And, you know, we're still here. Um, but initially, when I was getting that policy, that sort of alarmism, you know, really turned me off to the issue. I, you know, coming out of college, I thought, oh, well, there, there's no way, you know, I'm going to go into environmental or energy policy because, you know, everybody's just resigned to our, to our, uh, to our, to our fate in the uh, coming climate apocalypse. But, yeah. you know, for practical solutions, you know, we talk, we talked previously about mining, you know, all those emissions that get emitted from trucks, from machines, from the actual um, gases that leak out of the earth. You could put a, um, now I'm not a real big fan of um, direct air capture. You could put a direct air capture facility next door to the mine and that would essentially suck up a lot of the CO2 and emissions and clean it, filter it, and then release the air, um, you know, back into the atmosphere. And that could put a damper on a lot of those emissions, but we don't want to do that because again, no one wants to have a mine in their backyard. No one wants to have uh, a a loud, essentially large air filtration system in their backyard. But these, you know, we have the technology for some of these, um, for some of these technology, or excuse me, we have the technology for some of these facilities to operate. And for whatever reason, be it pork barrel politics or just classic NIMBY, NIMBY cynicism, we don't really want to do it. So it's there. Um, I think eventually you're going to see that people are going to our state officials are going to make the decisions, um, whether the citizenry likes it or not, which I don't really like. Um, But, you know, something's got to give eventually. And I think we'll see some innovations that really start pushing people towards, you know, We've got it. We've got we've got to save our environment and secure our energy grid. Um, so that's where that's going. <laughs> yeah, we shouldn't be trading the comfort that is afforded to us under a flourishing economy pre-inflation, pre-COVID, of course, yeah. for a clean environment. I, I don't know why people are calling for sacrificing one to achieve the other. There was a professor who tweeted something that capitalism is to blame for all of our environmental ills. And I was like, Oh boy, you are living in the past. That's an archaic way of thinking that should be relegated to the 1970s. So I think some people still are holdout, uh, reluctant types. But anyway, uh, Roy, briefly before we finish, could you tell me and my listeners what you have going on with the Alliance for Innovation and Infrastructure, any projects or papers that people should be aware of that are coming on the pipeline? Absolutely. So um, we're looking at a rail safety um, proposal by the FRA that would mandate crew sizes. We're looking, you know, we're not taking industry or the union side. We're just looking at the data, which is what we do, um, and seeing will this have a massive impact on rail safety. Uh, I mentioned, sort of related to the mining article, that um, importing all these minerals from overseas jacks up uh, emissions from shipping. 
There is a, a alternative shipping fuels paper that's coming out that looks into some interesting and sort of unorthodox um, fuels for container ships. Um, and we have our, we are starting to plan for our August energy month where we go into all different types of energy, be them, you know, everything from as basic as coal or natural gas to solar and nuclear. And we break it down by um, land requirements, um, amount of energy per unit um, to really give folks just sort of a, a bullet point list of each energy source and the pros and cons of each. Um, but yeah, be sure to follow us. We're on uh, Alliance for Innovation and Infrastructure is on Twitter at AII Nonprofit. We also have a LinkedIn. And if you go to our website at AII.org and sign up for our newsletter, you'll get a monthly newsletter with all our with all our energy, environment, transportation, and infrastructure um, information. How can listeners connect with you personally? Do you have social media or you want to defer them to your Young Voices profile? Uh, yeah, you can find my Young Voices profile at, I believe, youngvoices.org slash talent. Uh, I am on Twitter at yaboyroy98 with an underscore between yaboy and Roy. I made that when I was about I believe, <laughs> 15, I believe 15, and I have not been able to change the name, so apologies for that. <laughs> uh, and you can you can look me up on LinkedIn um, for all the you know articles I publish about everything from energy to international affairs. Wonderful. Thank you, Roy, for coming on to share about your articles, your thoughts on trending energy and environment topics, and wish you success in everything. And it was good to meet you finally a few weeks ago. Yeah, great to meet you too. I'll hopefully run into you soon. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of District of Conservation. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you're following the podcast on your preferred player. We recommend Apple because that's where the largest share of our listenership hails from. And you can also find us on Spotify and dozens of other platforms. Make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement. And please, please, please go leave us some reviews on Apple and Spotify. Those help us go a long way in seeing how far we can go and measure our progress. So we really appreciate that. If you enjoy this podcast, please share the word with your friends, share links to individual episodes and to the podcast. Want to appear on the podcast? Have an interesting story to tell? I'm all ears. Shoot me a message and we'll do our best to process your request.